we're not only indebted to Father Joseph for opening the doors to us here at Holy Transfiguration, but also for the wonderful Batlewa that he provided. So thank you, Father. Okay, last time, just quick review. Last time is, is absolutely essential as far as I'm concerned that you start to get a proper perspective on the book of Genesis. That you don't just read the words, but you see the picture. That you allow yourself to step into the story that's taking place. That you allow yourself to imagine what it looks like, what it sounds like. What did the leaves of paradise look like? What did the Garden of Eden smell like? The great biblical scholars, the great saints that have gone before us, Man for man understood what it meant to step into the story, to get the picture that the author was trying to get across to us. That takes time. It takes discipline. Okay? It takes questions. You have to ask yourself the questions, and they're not hard. Who, what, why, where, and when? And if you answer those questions, you'll be well on your way. And then allow the picture to be unveiled before you. What did the Garden of Eden sound like? In, in his Hymns on Paradise, St. Ephraim, where's St. Ephraim? I recommend this highly, St. Ephraim's Hymns on Paradise. Great, great text for meditation in the church. Okay? He spends the entire time exploring the Garden of Eden. Just exploring it and writing poetry about it. And he imagines what it was like for the dew to gather on the leaves of paradise. And for Adam and Eve to drink that dew and what it tasted like. What the river of life flowing through paradise looked like. What did the ground, what did the dirt look like? Start to imagine those things and suddenly the Bible will come alive for you. It won't be a dead book. It wasn't meant to be read as a dead book. It was meant to be read by a people who believed that this was the story of their beginning And this was the story of their future. God does not change his plan. He made a garden of paradise for man in the beginning. And he wants no less for us today. And unless we have that before us, unless we have that desire in our heart for that which was lost, then we won't want to go after that which God offers us. And we won't recognize that which God offers us as the very thing that He gave to man in the beginning. We talked about that then, about how the first verses of Genesis tell us about the beginning of creation. And on the sixth day, God created man in His image and likeness. In his image and likeness. So to know who man is and what man is supposed to be, what do we have to do? If man is made in the image and likeness of God, then who do we have to know to know who and what man is? We have to know God. And who is God in the first chapter of the book of Genesis? He is a creator. And therefore, who is man? Don't be afraid to say it. He is a creator. He is given the gift of creation, of furthering what God has already begun. God has planted a seed. And He has placed man there out of love to continue to do what God has already begun to do. God saw His creation as good, as perfect, 
as Joseph Pieper says, as lovable. To see something as good is to see it as desirable. And love is the foundation of all of our desires. God saw his creation as lovable. And when you love something, you desire to be united to it. God desired to be united with his creation. And on the sixth day, at the height of his creation, he created man. For what purpose? To love him. To be united to him. As I read to you uh, last time, at the very end, God created everything for man. But man in turn was created to serve. The things of creation were created for man. What is last in execution is first in intention. Okay? But man in turn was oriented beyond himself. And the orientation he had was toward the seventh day. The day of covenant union with God. Man was given commandments in the beginning. And there's an old philosophical phrase or principle that says that action always follows upon being. If you can see what a thing does, you'll know what it is. Likewise, if you know what a thing is, you'll know what it does. If you know that thing's a dog, you know it's going to bark and run. And if it doesn't bark and run, then it's just a statue. And it's not a real dog. But when it gets up and starts barking and running, you know what it is. Action follows upon being. Man is, man is told to do something in paradise. And based upon what he's told to do, we know what he's meant to be. And what is he told to do? To be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over creation, and to till and keep the garden. All of these things cause creation to come to be. In a sense, he's placed in the, foot, in the shoes of God to continue to do with creation what God has already begun to do. To be the image and likeness of God upon the earth. And to see that creation as good as desirable, as lovable. In other words, to desire a certain union with all of the things of creation and ultimately with God himself. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, Let us add that man's creation in the image of the nature that governs all demonstrates precisely that he has from the beginning a royal nature, Following common usage, painters of portraits of princes, as well as representing their features, express their royal dignity by garments of purple. And before this image, one is accustomed to say, the king. Thus, human nature created to rule the world because of his resemblance to the universal king has been made like a living image that participates in the archetype by dignity and by name. He is not clothed in purple, scepter, and diadem, for these do not signify his, dig his dignity. The archetype himself does not possess them. But in place of purple, he is clothed with virtue, the most royal of garments. Instead of a scepter, he is endowed with blessed immortality. Instead of a royal diadem, he bears the crown of justice. In such a way that everything about him ma manifests royal dignity by his exact likeness to the beauty of the archetype. Man is then placed in paradise as an image of God, yes, 
but also, in a sense, to attain that image and likeness of God. As the fathers say, the image refers to his nature and the likeness to grace. That man is made by his reason and will, by his rational faculties, an image of God by nature. But he is to attain by grace divinization. And therefore, Adam and Eve are given a choice in paradise. A choice to do what God has asked them to do. Not a command like a dictator gives a command. No. God is the creator of man, and therefore he knows and he is the only one who knows what is truly good for us. The commandments God gives are always for our good, so as to attain what he has planned for us. The first story of creation. By the way, how many of you um, did your homework? No, really? Wow. How many of you read it three times? Not bad. Look at that. I'm impressed. I had a, I had a prize for the only one that actually did it. Um, so out of the people that did that, next week, next week, and I'm, I'm going to say it one time, so you either write down whatever you want. Next time, you need to find out for me what Joseph's Egyptian name was, the name that Pharaoh gave to Joseph, and what it means, and what it means. It's in the book of Genesis. And if you do that, then this nice little Bible case that Anson brought will be yours. It's brand new, okay? And Deacon David, I think this would fit your Bible very nice, nice and thick. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. All right. Well, I don't think I'm going to have that problem. Okay, the first seven days of creation are divided. A lot of times in Scripture, the texts, the most important texts, are given a structure so that the people, so that we can memorize those texts and tell those stories to our children. The first seven days of creation are given a structure. Okay? And that structure is divided initially into six parts. Okay? This board is terrible, and I'm sorry about that. The marker is brand new. It's the board. Okay? The first day of creation, what is made? Right, light and darkness. Okay? The second day of creation? Well, the water above and below, right? So we could say the heavens and the sea, right? The waters above and below, the heavens and the seas, okay? And the third day of creation? Why do I have four there? That's a mistake. Sorry about that. Ignore that. The third day of creation? Yeah. Land, right? And plants, okay? The first three days of creation give us what you might call the worlds, okay? I don't know if a better word, the different um, spheres of life, okay? The worlds in which the th other three days of creation will fill in, okay? The next three days of creation will give us the rulers of those worlds. And so, on the fourth day of creation, what is made? Yeah, what am I for here? Right, the sun and moon. Okay, the sun to rule the day, 
right? And the moon to rule the night. So the sun and moon. The fifth day of creation? Good, the birds and, and the fish, not the animals, right? The seas above and below. And the, and the sixth day of creation? Right, animals and man who will rule the land and the plants. You see that? You can memorize the entire first chapter of Genesis if you just remember that. Isn't that nice? And if some have said, the seventh day is kind of like a roof which binds the whole house together. It makes the whole of the seven days make sense. It's not until the seventh day that you understand why God is doing what he's doing in the first place. So I ask you, why did God create in seven days? He could have created in six. Well, he did create in six, and on the seventh he rested, right? Could have created in nine. Which brings me to another point, which I meant to mention last time, and I better mention it now. Someone asked me, you're presenting an awfully literal interpretation of this text. Awfully literal interpretation of this text. Look, my goal here is not to debate evolution, okay, versus creationism, not at all. My goal is to try to get a sense of what the Bible's teaching, period. And it's time that I think we start to humble ourselves to that, to listen to the Word of God and give Him a chance to speak for once. Okay? While all the theories, the latest scientific theories, change day by day, the texture in front of you has stood for centuries and centuries, thousands and thousands of years. And it's time to sit back and see if there might be some grain of truth there to be gained. Okay? This text is not trying to give you what the modern science is trying to understand by uh, carbon dating. This was not the intention of the ancient Jews. It was to tell about the mystery by which they were brought into being and gathered as a people. To tell us about who their God was. Okay? The church says you can hold to ev certain evolutionary theories as long as you, you hold to other certain principles in creation, fine. You can also hold to a strict interpretation of the text in seven days, as St. Thomas Aquinas himself did. You can hold, as St. Augustine did, that these seven days are seven epochs or time periods. No problem. I have no problem with any of these things. But I do want to finally get to the text and study it. Do you see my point? All right, and you're wondering, well, why don't you just get there? All right. So, why seven days? Does anybody know? Yeah, the covenant. What is this? What does the seven days have to do with the covenant? The word in Hebrew for seven is Sheva. Oh, could have a V or a B, it doesn't matter. Sheva. Which shares the same root, root word, for the word oath or covenant. They both share the same root. And therefore, the Jewish people used the number seven as a symbol of the covenant or oath. You can see this in Genesis. Do we have time to turn to it? Fine. Genesis chapter 22. 
I think it's chapter 22. If it's not, yeah, there it is, chapter 21. I'm going to read it really fast, okay? Chapter 21, verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my offspring, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt loyally with you, you will deal with me. And with the land where you... Um, whatever, where you sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what are the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set apart? And he says, these seven ewe lambs will be, uh, you will take from me, from my hand, that you may be a witness to me that I dug this well. And therefore, the place was called Be'er Sheva, or the well of swearing. Okay? He gives them seven ewe lambs, and therefore, they call it the well of swearing. Okay, because of the number seven representing the covenant or the oath. Does that make sense? Okay, and so God creates in this seven-day pattern for the specific intention to communicate to his people his desire. And his desire is to make a covenant union with his people. That man is oriented not just to himself. Creation is not just oriented to man, but all of creation and ultimately man is oriented toward the seventh day. And on that seventh day, God and man will enter into a covenant union. And when a covenant is made, when two parties join into a covenant, what happens to those two parties? In relationship to the thing they make the covenant about, they become one. In a marriage covenant, the two become one. In the story of Abraham and Abimelech, the two men agreed. They came to one mind regarding this well. It didn't matter who you talked to, they would say the same thing about the well. This is a covenant union. And on the seventh day, man and God were to be joined together in that covenant union. The two would become one. And God, in his love for man, would share all things that he had with his children. And they in their turn would receive those things and offer all of creation back to the Father. Okay? To be joined as one. David Shilton in his, in his book Days of Vengeance says, God's relationship with Israel was always defined in terms of the covenant, the marriage bond by which he joined her to himself as his special people. So let's turn to, the, to day seven. Ooh, we got to go faster. I got to go faster, I'm sorry. Chapter two, verse one. It's a good example of how the chapters are put in the wrong places in the Bible. They're a late addition to the text. So you'll notice, we're still within the first creation story, and we start chapter two. Really, it probably should have been put down there at verse four. Chapter two, verse one. Melanie's going to read for us here. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. This is what you want me to read? Yes. Right? Okay. And on the seventh day, God finished his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven okay. and earth. Okay. So God rests from his work. What does it look like for God to rest? I usually like to have a chair here. Does he sit back with his, you know, his core's light? And, ah, oh, finally. Man, that was a lot of work. He cracks it open, drinks it, and smashes it over his head. No, of course not. What does it look like for God to rest? What does it mean God rests? What does God do when he rests? What does he do when he rests? What's that? He plays tennis. I don't think so. He communes with himself. He communes with himself. What does the Bible say he does when he rests? He blesses. See, I catechized Melanie over here, so she knows all the answers. He blesses and sanctifies his creation. St. Thomas Aquinas says, The good mentioned in the works of each day belong to the first institution of nature, but the blessing attached to the seventh day to its propagation. What does it mean for something to be blessed? It's made holy. It's How is it changed? Something more. Set aside. Set aside for what? Okay, set aside for God. How would it become in some way a participant in who and what God is? God and God alone is holy. And when something is blessed, when it is sanctified, when it is made holy... It participates in something of God. And this is the intention which God had in making creation in the first place. That his creation and ultimately man would be brought to perfection by entering into a covenant union with him. By sharing in the things which are proper to God alone. By receiving the life of God. And this is exactly what takes place on the seventh day, or I should say this is what is meant to take place on the seventh day. Okay, God has created man and set the man to join with him. He hasn't done it yet. So man is beginning. Let's, we're setting the stage. Okay, he's saying, he's, uh, uh, say it again, say it loud. I can't say it better than you did. Go. Okay. Uh, loud. God has created man, and he wants man to join with him. This is the beginning. Good. And? He hasn't done it yet, right? Do you see there's something, there's something in the text waiting. Man's given this command to do things like God does things. Huh? What's man supposed to do on the seventh day? Yeah. And when he rests, what's he supposed to do? To bless creation, to sanctify it, to make it holy. What's that, what kind of person does that sound like? A priest. A priest. Adam was meant to be a priest of God, to offer all of creation back to the Father, sanctified, made holy. Okay? So that it would be a part partaker in God's own nature. No one hearing this text in ancient Israel would think only of a rest for God on this day, but would immediately recognize that God's people were called to image God in a way open to all human beings 
but actualized only by Israel. They are called to imitate God not only in his activity, but in his perfecting of creation. So here we are, left kind of waiting to find out what is going to take place. Will man respond to his divine call or not? And then what happens to our story? It starts over again. What's going on here? Modern scholars will say that, they, that, that, that uh, Israel um, in the late Babylonian period kind of collected some of the ancient uh, myths of the, of the surrounding peoples. They didn't quite know what to do with these myths because they were kind of you know, Neanderthal types. They threw them together in the book of Genesis and they ended up with this kind of ridiculous story telling of two different creation stories which contradict each other. Okay? Unfortunately, I would say most modern scholars have forgotten that there was an entire tradition that came before them. Okay? That pointed out certain things about the text which made it make sense together as a unit, such as this. Things like that don't appear when paragraphs are shoved together by accident. Okay? So the creation story starts over again. Melanie, why don't you read that first from verse 4? These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the, the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Okay. Do you have any problem with this based upon chapter 1 of Genesis? Yeah. Before, what happened? The, the plants, the land was, was made, the plants came up, right? And then later on, man was made. Huh? But here the text seems to reverse, to contradict chapter 1. Okay? Here's what St. Ephraim says in his commentary on Genesis. After Moses spoke of the Sabbath rest, he returned to the account of how the creation was first fashioned, briefly passing over those things of which he had already spoken, while recounting in detail those things that he had left out. He then began to write about the creation a second time. St. Augustine. Certain occurrences are so related that the narrative appears to be following the order of time or the continuity of events when it really goes back without mentioning it to previous occurrences which had been passed over in their proper place. And we make the mistake if we do not understand this. For example, in the book of Genesis, we read, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward, or previously, in Eden. Now here it seems to be indicated that the events last mentioned took place after God had formed man and put him in the garden. Whereas the fact is that the two events having been briefly mentioned, the narrative goes back by way of recapitulation to tell what it had omitted. Okay? This was a common way of writing for the ancient peoples of the Middle East, not just among the Jews. They would write a text... Okay? And then they would stop when they got to a critical point in the text, and they would retell the story from the new vantage point with, the, which, with, with which they had. 
Okay? We talked about Moses going up on Mount Sinai last week. Not that he went up there last week, but we did. Okay? And how many days did it took, take him to ascend to the top of the mountain? Seven days. And on the seventh day, what happened? The glory of God descended upon him, and he beheld the Lord face to face on the seventh day. It seems to me that the story of creation in the first part has been working very methodically, very, in a sense, historically, point by point through the story of creation until we get to day seven, in which we find out the entire purpose of the creation story, that God has planned to join himself to his creation and to man. And at that point, the entire story changes. It has to change. And Moses has to retell the story when he beholds God face to face and sees God's plan for the first time. As I said to you last week, what does he not see who sees him who sees all? What does he not see who sees him who sees all? Moses had to retell the story of creation from the perspective of the covenant of the seventh day. Focusing on the most important aspects of that covenant. Focusing on the most important aspects of that creation story. And so we get chapter 2 of Genesis. In chapter 2 of Genesis, we, in a sense, we jump off, I think, from Moses standing on Mount Sinai and seeing the creation story from afar is brought down to stand in the very creation that he's, been, that he's witnessed. To see face to face God form Adam out of the mud of the earth. To breathe his breath, his spirit into man. To place him in a garden of paradise. Moses now stands in the middle of the garden of Eden and tells us what he sees. I have a homework assignment for my great homework doers. I can't believe it. I'm serious. I've, Nobody ever does the homework assignments I tell them to do. Here's your homework assignment. Make a list of all of the images of the Garden of Eden that you catch in chapter 2. All of the things that you, by which you would recognize the story, the landscape, what's around you, what does it look like, what is there. It's essential because this is our home that God has planted for us. This is our home he wants us to come back to. And if we don't recognize it, when we walk back into it with Jesus Christ, we will miss what he's doing. Okay? I had a really nice quote here. Here it is from David Chilton again. One of the most important discoveries that, uh, that, one can, that can be made by one studying the Bible, is an understanding of the basic imagery laid down in the early chapters of Genesis. Light and darkness, water and land. Listen to what he comes up with here. Sky and clouds, mountains and gardens, beasts and dragons, gold and jewels, trees and thorns, cherubs and flaming swords, all of which form a grand and glorious story, a true fairy tale. This is the most important thing you can do. So I want to challenge you. Make a list. At least 10 or 15 things by which you recognize your father's home. The place where he planted Adam in the beginning. And in the midst of that garden, what did he plant? The tree of life. Ay, ay, ay. 
this, I think we need to get rid of this board. What do you guys think? Yeah. Don't forget your donor brochures. <laughs> All right, it was too good. Okay, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is the tree of life? Yeah, if man eats of the tree of life, he will receive eternal life. I don't need to write it down. Eternal life. Whose life is eternal? God's life. God planned for us in the beginning to, to eat from a tree, to receive through that created material object the eternal life of God. You say, how is that possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. Because God loves His creation. And when somebody loves something, He desires that the thing He loves participate in who and what He is. That He gives everything of Himself to the thing He loves. Even to the point of sharing His life with the dirt and the water and the fruit of creation. If there's any... I, I know there's some Protestants among us. My dear friends... You're missing out on the love of God. He wants the things of this world to participate in his life. This is why in baptism man is reborn in the image and likeness of God. This is why when oil is put upon the, on the forehead of a baby, he receives the Holy Spirit. This is why bread and wine can become the flesh and blood of God. Because he loves us. And he loves his creation that much. That goes a little far afield. Nevertheless, the tree of life in the midst of paradise, that man was to participate, to take in, and to receive the life of God and live forever. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why is the tree of knowledge of good and evil placed in paradise? Because man has free will. Because man has free will, and therefore God's got to put something good, right? The tree of life, and something evil... To make, give him a choice to choose between the two. No? What? What is the what, what is the what happens if man eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? He will die. He will die. God will kill him. Right? Ah, what does the text say about the tree of knowledge? Melanie, go ahead and read that for us from verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Do I keep one? Okay. You shall die. Does God say he'll kill him? No. No. He says, look, here is this tree. Don't eat of it. He places the first fast upon Adam. Don't eat it. For if you do, if you do, you will surely die. I like to think of a mother who is baking cookies in an oven. Okay? What's the mother say to the child? Don't touch of it. If you do... You'll be burned. I'm, I'm going to kill you. No. <laughs> You'll be burned. Not because the mother does not want the child to get what's in the oven. In fact, the very opposite. Right? 
The mother wants the child to get that. In fact, the entire goal of raising the child is to bring the child to the point where that child can come and open the oven and get what's inside of it on their own. Am I right? This was God's plan in the beginning. Okay? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil is, is, is a Hebrew idiom. Okay? It's called a Hebrew mirrorism. When two antithetical things are placed in tension against one another. And the point is not the ends of that tension, but all that which is in between. Knowledge of the full expanse, in a sense, uh, the full expanse of knowledge. We get this in chapter 3, a fuller explanation of the tree of knowledge, in chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. To make one wise. Okay? In other words, the tree, as the church fathers throughout say, was not made evil. It was not made something to trick man. Rather, it was made for man's good at the right time, in the right way. St. Gregory Nazianzen says, This law was a commandment as to what plants he might partake of and which he might not touch. The latter was the tree of knowledge, not, however, because it was evil from the beginning when planted, nor was it forbidden because God grudged it to us, but it would have been good if partaken of at the proper time time. Okay? When man was ready, when he had shown himself worthy by following the commandments of God, the church fathers say, God would have allowed him access to the tree of knowledge by which he would have gained the knowledge which he sought. His eyes would have been opened and he would have beheld the full glory of God. St. Ephraim says, Before their eyes were open and closed, open in that they could, not, they could see everything, but closed in that they could, that they be, sorry, but closed in that they could see neither the tree of life nor their own nakedness. I've got to take a break there in the quote because I've got to tell you something that St. Ephraim's working on here. Those of you that stayed for the question and answer last time will remember this. St. Ephraim says, Look, if when Moses sees into, into heaven, he sees the heavenly sanctuary, he comes down on earth and builds a golden garden. In other words, he beholds paradise. I then can learn more about the Garden of Eden by looking at the temple. Okay? And I can learn more about the temple by reading about the Garden of Eden. And so he says the Garden of Eden was... In, in the midst of the Garden of Eden was the tree of life, which had around it the glory of God, the cloud of God, which wrapped the tree of life in all its glory. In other words, the throne of God was in the midst of the garden. And guarding the way to that tree of life like a gate which surrounded that tree was the tree of knowledge. Okay? And man dwelt outside of that inner sanctuary. 
In other words, there was a holy of holies. There was a court of the Jews. Okay? And outside that were the animals. Okay? And the animals were not allowed to come into the court of the Jews or where man was allowed to come in. And man could not pass to the tree of life, nor could he see it without partaking of the tree of knowledge. In other words, the tree of knowledge was essential for man's salvation, if partaken of in the right time, in the right way. We'll get to that. <laughs> if the serpent had been rejected along with sin, here's your answer, Adam and Eve would have eaten from the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, would not have been withheld from them. From the one they would have received infallible knowledge, and from the other they would have received immortal life. They would have acquired divinity with their humanity. And if they had acquired infallible knowledge and immortal life, they would have possessed them in the same bodies. Okay? Say, uh, well, this is a question. If they did have it, they were able to lose it. Okay? But if they had, had access to the tree of life, they would have never lost it. Okay? St. Ephraim says that if they had partaken of the tree of life in the right way, they would have eaten and the glory cloud of God would have been lifted and they would have been beheld their future glory and they would have come into the inner sanctuary to dwell for all eternity with the Father, to eat from the tree of life and receive eternal life. Whereas when they ate from the tree of knowledge and disobedience, they saw what they could not have. And at that moment, were cast out into the outer darkness. So they were prevented from eating the tree of life? That's what St. Ephraim says. Prevented only until the point when they could show themselves to be worthy to come to the holy mysteries. Sound like anything that you recognize? Okay. The holy mysteries of the church, baptism, chrismation, the Eucharist, we say these same things about the mysteries of the church for a reason. So it is the plan of God in the beginning. It is the plan of God now. Let's keep going. Oh, five minutes. I, 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 we gotta get, okay, we've got to get through the whole fall. So, um, <laughs> just real quick. The woman is made. Adam beholds and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. St. Ephraim says that when Adam was put down and placed in that deep sleep, far from losing his consciousness, he saw more clearly the truth that was taking place. So that as he awoke, he beheld the one who had came from, come from his side and he said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. St. Ephraim asked the question, what day was this? What day was this? In the context of, 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 of um, Genesis chapter 1, in what day was, was Eve created? The sixth day. Exactly, the sixth day. Scott Hahn says the same thing. He says, there's no reason to believe that they lived together for a long period of time prior to the fall. Rather, it seems as though Eve was created on the sixth day when Adam closed his eyes for the first time to sleep. She was drawn forth from his side and woke up then as covenant partners on the seventh day, the day in which God desired to share a covenant union with man, and man as the image and likeness of God was to turn to his creation and primarily to his spouse, 
and have a covenant union relationship with her. That all of the, the, the whole of creation was to be united as one on that seventh day. That day in which God and man would speak together and share all things. And man and woman would speak to each other and share their most intimate thoughts. And so, the woman wakes up on the seventh day. In chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature. Notice how the text goes. Therefore, from verse 24, Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. What would you expect next in the story? What's that? How about that man and, man and woman turned to God, worshipped Him? They bore children, fulfilling the commandment of God. They had dominion over creation. We would expect him to do what he's supposed to do. And here, immediately, the serpent steps in. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say to you, you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? No, he sneaks in a little lie. Right? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Notice, at the moment when we would have expected Adam and Eve to enter into that covenant conversation, Eve turns to the serpent and begins to speak with him. Okay? For the Jews to speak with another person was not some light matter. Not like it is today we walk down the street you know, and say hello, so forth, and, and walk on. You notice when Jesus was at the well with the, with the uh, Samaritan woman, the apostles were appalled that he would be speaking with her because to speak with another was to share what was yours, to enter into covenant with that person. And so St. John Chrysostom says, what was the woman doing speaking to the serpent in the first place? For she should have been conversing with the one for whom she had been made and with whom she shared all things on equal terms. And yet here she turns and communicates with the one for whom she had not been made. I believe this is the point of what we might call the first divorce, the separation of Adam and Eve. Okay? And who is missing from the story? Adam. You know, in the Hebrew, when the serpent turns and says, Did God say that you will not do this? He speaks in the plural indicating a possibility that Adam was standing right there and did not do what he was supposed to do to keep his garden, to protect his bride, but allowed her to communicate with the serpent. And notice, she then goes after that which her eyes desired. In verse 7, or no, verse 6. So when the woman, go ahead, Millie, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. St. Ephraim says that, that at this moment that, that Eve who eats, notice she goes and she ate and then what did she do? She brought some to her husband. Okay? He says that Eve tried to become head over her head, to become older in divinity in the presence of the one who is older than her in humanity, Adam. 
okay? Just like the devil always does. He turns all things on their head, okay? And so she goes after divinity. She eats, and St. Ephraim says, nothing happened to her. Nothing happened to her. And so she's out of fear. She says, I, I better go take some to Adam, gives it to him, okay? Just as the serpent had done to her, she does to Adam, and he eats. And then the curse takes place. The eyes of both were opened, and they were naked and ashamed. Ephraim says, before they ate the fruit, they perceived in reality only good, and they heard about evil by hearsay. After they ate, however, a change occurred, so that now they would only hear about good by hearsay, whereas in reality, they would taste only evil. Yes, go ahead. We're out of time. Yeah, ex good point. This is what the, saint, the, the fathers of the church say. He says, Eve, w w why didn't you just turn to him and say, I can see you're lying by your very words, for I am in the image and likeness of God. So you show yourself to be a liar by the very words that come out of your mouth. And yet she did not do that. And neither did Adam. And neither did Adam. So they were like God except knowing good and bad. They were like God and yet there was something more to be revealed to them. They were in some, in some sense not like children, but they, were, they, they had full capacity. Otherwise, if they had no knowledge, of, of, uh, no knowledge at all, as we oftentimes perceive knowledge of good and evil, how could they have perceived whether the words of the serpent were good or bad or not? How could they have sinned? God walks into the garden. You guys know this because you read it three times, so we don't have to read the text. God walks into the garden, and what does he do? He says, where are you? Do you think he doesn't know where Adam is? No. But what is missing that was there before? His son. Adam had cast off his royal robe, the grace of sonship, by which he participated not only by nature, but by grace in who and what God is. And the fa fathers say that before he had been robed in the robe of glory, like the prodigal son before he had left, he cast off that robe and found himself naked and ashamed. He clothed himself in fig leaves. And later, God clothes him in what? in animal skins to reflect what he had become. Okay? This is why in our baptismal liturgy, the child is clothed again, stripped of their old vestments, their old garments, the garments of sin, and clothed in the white garment of baptism, the robe of glory, the robe of grace. And traditionally, the older ladies probably know this in the room, those clothes that they took off, what do you do with them? You destroy them. You burn them so that the child never wears them again. Okay, I'm going to conclude with this, because it'll, it'll help you memorize uh, chapter 3. There's another structure in chapter 3 that uh, is very easy to follow, and that is it's put there for, our, for us to memorize the text. Okay, the, the serpent tempts Eve. Eve tempts Adam. God walks into the garden, and what does Adam do? He blames Eve. And what does Eve do? Blames the serpent. Then God curses the serpent. Then God curses Eve. And then God curses Adam. Okay, I shouldn't say God curses Adam. They receive the curse which they have brought upon themselves. 
You see that? That's the whole chapter 3. Okay, and you can memorize it like that very systematically. Can you know the whole text by heart now? St. Ephraim and, and St. John Chrysostom also, I believe, say that if Adam had repented of his sin when God came to him, God would have forgiven him and restored him to all that he had lost. But instead, Adam hid himself in fear and denied what had happened. And instead of confessing his sins to his loving father, he blamed his bride. And she in her turn also, rather than admitting what she had done in the face of her loving father, blamed the serpent and brought upon themselves the eternal curse. I know I'm out of time. I know I said that was my last point, but I do got to finish with one last thing. And that is that Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise for one reason. Those that read Genesis chapters 1 through 3 three times will know this. What was the reason why they were thrown out of paradise? Lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. Chapter 3, verse 22. Yeah, somewhere right around there. Why would our Heavenly Father not want us to receive eternal life? In this fallen world, no thank you. Good. Good. St. Ephraim beautifully says that if Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life in the fallen state, they would have lived forever as though buried alive. They would have been in hell, separated from God for all eternity. And therefore, God in His mercy separated man from that which He had made His source of salvation so that one day, in the right way, at the right time, in obedience, He could bring His Son back into paradise and give Him back access to the tree of life that He might eat of it and live once again forever. And that is the hope which sustained the Jews for thousands of years, hoping for the coming of the Messiah. Next week, we will deal with chapters. We're going to be able to go very quickly now. Once you have a foundation, chapters 1 through 3, you're good to go. So, chapters 3 through 15 for next week. Okay? In fact, we might even, we might get farther than chapter 15. Okay? And then the last week, we'll go <laughs> chapter 15 through 50. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to do, we're going to take a, a two minute break because I'm over time, and then we'll do a five minute QA. There was a couple of questions during the break, so why don't we, yes? Did the, so going back to St. Ephraim's uh, vision. Okay, before you say that, somebody asked me, who is St. Ephraim? St. Ephraim is a fifth century, yes? Fifth century. Uh, 5th century biblical scholar, monk, who, who is a doctor of the church for the very reason of the scriptural exegesis, well, holiness of life, but, his, but, but uh, a doctor of the church because his biblical exegesis is so insightful and so sound. And so this is why I'm quoting from him constantly. It's not that I've only read St. Ephraim. It's just that whenever I read anybody else and they make sense, Eventually, I just find it in St. Ephraim. He said it before they ever did, and they ripped it off from him. So uh, he's just amazing. And he's amazing because he goes and he steps into the story, you know, and he allows, he prays God, to God. And he, says, he says, reveal this to your, ser your servant. Show me. 
and allows himself to, to prayerfully walk through these texts and look at them, imagine what they were like, okay? And things come, come to him that are just, that are unbelievable, okay? So, okay. So, okay. So, based on St. Ephraim's vision of that mat, where the Garden of Eden matches the temple, uh-huh. uh, we got the tree of life in the middle and the tree of knowledge just on the outside guarding the tree of life. And man is in that inner sanctuary only, and animals are on the outside. Yes. Does a serpent sneak in, or does Eve and Adam go to the boundaries and talk to the serpent there? He says, St. Ephraim says, that the animals could not enter in. Okay? And so, um, the serpent would have had to be here on the edge, and Eve would have had to willingly go out to meet him. And had okay. all that time to think, think on the way back to the <laughs> That's now. right. That's right. But here's my, my response to that is, look, Eve must have been good looking, huh? I mean, she really must have been good looking. And this was the first day of their marriage. And now I'm married to a beautiful lady, okay? And on the first day of our marriage... She didn't go very far from me. <laughs> Not because she didn't want to, but because I was always right there. Okay? So, you know, I, I'd have a hard time believing that Adam didn't know what was going on. Right? That he would allow his bride to wander off and forget about her on the first day of their, of their union. Anyways. Yes. Jesus cured and did miracles on the Sabbath. And, and they didn't understand why he was doing that. He was curing and right. healing this is, and blessing. Yeah. It, it, saying, God rests and sanctifies, blesses and sanctifies on the Sabbath day. You remember in the Gospel of John, they attack our Lord for healing the paralytic. How dare you do this on the seventh day? And what's his response? My father is still working and I am working. Okay? On the Sabbath day. And what's he mean? My father's doing what he always does. He sanctifies. He shares his life. And that's exactly what Christ was doing. Our Lord was walking around healing people, not to be some crazy miracle worker. He had dominion over his creation. And a king who has dominion over his creation, a good king, walks through his realm, identifies where there's a problem, and fixes it. He makes his kingdom run properly. And our Lord, having dominion over his creation, goes through his creation and sees, hey, that's not working the way it's supposed to. And he fixes the problem. He shows his power, his dominion over creation by, by healing the, the sick, by healing the blind, by raising the paralytics. Okay? Solving the problems in his kingdom. Yes? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It seems to me that maybe if they don't eat it, they are showing that they do have the knowledge of good and evil because, I mean, it's not the eating. It's the not eating that has shown that they recognize God for who God is and they're, they're, that they should properly obey him. So the not eating. Does anybody else have a response to that? Only because I didn't quite follow it exactly. Yes, Father. The, the fathers point out that the Eve and Adam, or Eve in particular, saw the fruit as an end in itself. Okay? So that tension, that mirrorism that uh, Sabatino spoke about, knowledge of good and evil, but it was the fruit itself that Eve saw as something desirable of and by itself and not as communion with God. 
We commune with God by means of partaking of his creation. We eat dead fruit and animal flesh to sustain our human life. We eat the Eucharist to be able to sustain the divine life. When we see food as an end in itself, food for food's sake, art for art's sake, this for this sake, and not for the sake of God, then the thing becomes an idol. It becomes an obstacle to, uh, to approach God. There was, there was a problem. Okay? That's why during Lent we set aside certain foods that they don't become idols for us, that i got to simply have that thing because it's so good for me and not referring that to God. That's the point. There was one just, yeah. Yes, go ahead, Francis. My question is, is there any proof that Adam can resist the serpent's temptations if the serpent were to approach him first? If there's no proof that Adam can resist the temptation, then why St. John Christendom had to blame everything on Eve? Well, some of the fathers say he turned to the weaker sex. Now, I know that's today really uh, not cool, right? But he says he turned to the weaker sex, um, and uh, lest he be thwarted by Adam's, um, you know, Adam's whatever strength. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think that answers your question, does it? All right. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, in, uh, in 22, uh, uh, chapter 3, Mm-hmm. God said, here the human has become like one of us. There's that plural again. Yeah. To know good and bad, and now, in case, he'll put out his hand and take from the tree of life as well, and eat and live forever. So, but is God saying then that he doesn't want Adam to become like one of his, or he's yeah. not ready to become like that, one of his? Like St. Ephraim saying, he would have eaten and lived from forever, but not in the right state. Not in the right way of life. He's not ready for it. That's right. Exactly. Because he would have eaten. Look, St. Paul virtually uh, uh, quotes this text. He doesn't quote it, but he, he uses the same thing in 1 Corinthians, the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he talks about the Eucharist. And he says, some of you are coming to receive the Eucharist without discerning the body and blood of our Lord. And therefore, you're getting sick and you're dying. But our Lord says that if you eat the Eucharist, you will live forever. And so that which God has made good for us, we can turn to our destruction, as Father was just saying, by misusing the gift of God. Okay, by not discerning what we're about to do. And this is why the church has always said, confession's available. Go to confession. Make yourself right with God and then come to the Holy Eucharist. Okay, last question. Yes, in, in other words, he got them to fall in the same sin that he did, non servium, I won't serve, uh-huh. that they wanted to redefine themselves, what, was, what were good and evil. Yeah, I mean, than I think St. Ephraim kind of points out the stupidity. The serpent's approach is kind of really childish and just, it, it's almost obvious. And so it's kind of, it drives me kind of crazy that Eve didn't just say, get away from me. I can tell by what you're saying that you're, you know, and so forth. But um, as we know that, Satan has an ability to manipulate in a way that becomes very attractive to us. Yes, doctor. It yeah. must have been an attractive creature. To have you mean attracted. for Eve to go out and want to talk? Right. And then after the curse, it became a serpent as we understand the curse at the present yeah. time. It's possible. Um, it, you know, it, 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 like I was just saying in that last question, that 
that Satan has an ability to manipulate, okay, and to make himself uh, very attractive when he wants, and at other times very much repulsive to man, okay. And so uh, whether that was is taking place there, I don't know. But um, why? Again, look, we're left in a sen- some sense at the end of this with our hands up, right, saying we don't have all the answers of what took place, okay. But we do know this. We do know this that God desired to share his life with us. Okay? And when that happens, we become participants in eternal life. That's what God had planned for us in the beginning. And that's what God wants for us now. It's the story of the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, the whole story of salvation history. If you get that, and if you keep that in the forefront of your mind, everything that's going on in the Bible, all the difficult stories... Well, suddenly, you might not be able to make sense out of everything, but it's, it, all of a sudden, everything becomes one unit. It's one thing. It's the love story between God and his creation. And man either loves God back or he turns away from his source of life and receives a lack of life. He receives death, not because God cursed him, but because he chose it over eternal life. Okay? Let's stop there. You have your homework for next week, making those the images of of chapter 2. And uh, bring a friend, save a soul. God bless you.